Welcome back to the Doing Good Podcast, where we talk to volunteers about their experiences serving their communities. I'm Megan McInnes, your host for this episode. I'm glad you're with us today as we celebrate amazing volunteers, their stories, organizations, and their passion for making a difference. We encourage you to celebrate a volunteer you know and share today's story with someone to hopefully educate or even inspire them to act. Now, on to celebrating those who are doing good. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Doing Good. We're so happy to have Lauren and Barbara here with us today. Uh, Barbara, would you introduce yourselves and tell us why you're here today to celebrate your volunteerism? Hi, I'm Lauren Rappaport. I live in Washington, D.C. I've had type 1 diabetes for 42 years. Um, I'm here with my mom. We've both been volunteers for almost 42 years. My mom uh, got started volunteering, almost a diagnosis. She'll tell you her story. Um, I quit my 20-year corporate career and became a life coach, um, a T1D life coach to help adults to buy the disease to live better and fuller lives with type 1 diabetes. At T1D, it's type 1 diabetes. Hi, I'm Barbara. Um, my husband and I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, got married, moved to Connecticut, where Lauren was diagnosed at age three with what they called at the time juvenile diabetes. And um, a few years after that, we, uh, we moved to the Washington, D.C. area, where we've been ever since. When, we, when Lauren was first diagnosed, we had the organization raising money for diabetes research. And there was no chapter in our area, so we became founders with a two other couples of the chapter and have been raising money since. Well, um, obviously you have personal attraction to juvenile diabetes and, or what is now known as T1D, for short, for the rest of this podcast. Um, now, it sounds to me like, Barbara, you have volunteerism in your heart that goes way back. Can you tell us a little bit about where your um, interest in volunteering common background is? Well, I was um, educated as a teacher and I became a teacher. But then when I had children, I was home with them um, as my mother was when she had me and my sister. And she always had this drive to do something important. And felt involved in a, in a meaningful way. So she learned how to transcribe books into Braille. Um, yes, it was rather unusual. And also she did other activities that inspired me. And her sister, my aunt, um, was extremely active in an organization called ORT, Organization for rehabilitation and training. I think it's an Israeli organization raising money uh, to rehabilitate uh, young people. And so when the children were little, I found myself active in my son's nursery school on the board, as you are. And then I got involved in um, a couple of other organizations and found myself something I never knew I had uh, the either the desire or the capability of being president, but I somehow managed and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being with people. I enjoyed the activity. 
and seeing that they came off well. Um, I enjoyed the, the, I've always been organized. So I enjoyed the, the, uh, to, you know, to learn skills of organization and to, um, you know, see events to their fruition. And, uh, and then when Lauren was diagnosed with T1D, it was become my, my laser focus. Everything else went into, and, uh, it was my laser focus from that point on. And Lauren, how did you feel about your mom being laser focused on T1D? Well, it's funny. Um, as a kid, I, I felt like I would go to, to JDRF events for my parents. Like, oh, I'll do it for them. And of course, she was doing it for me. So it's like, it felt like this reciprocal thing. So I kind of felt like I was dragged to events as a kid. Um, and then it wasn't until the, this event called the um, JDRF Ride to Cure Diabetes. And it's a 100-mile bike ride. And it's this amazing event where there's five, usually around five different rides you can choose to go all across the country. Um, Lake Tahoe, Burlington, Vermont, all these different rides, beautiful. And so again, I would go to these different JDRF events for my parents. And it wasn't until my mom, I'll never forget the day, my mom came to me and said, your dad wants to do the ride with you. And I was like, my dad wants to do something with me? You know, I don't usually do a lot of things one on dad. And, and it just seemed like such a cool challenge, right? A hundred mile bike ride. So I said, I'll do the ride with my dad. And so we did the ride together. And it was just, and it's, it's a three-day uh, event. So you're traveling with, with different folks with type 1 diabetes all over the world. And it wasn't until I did the ride and you're, you're bonding with different people from all over the country. You're accomplishing a goal of training and biking 100 miles in one day. In one day. Um, and raising money. My dad ended up being the second highest fundraiser. I myself raised ten thousand. It, it was the most one of the most amazing things I've ever done. And it wasn't until that weekend where I said to myself, "It's time that I took on JDRF for myself. That I can do this. I can actually make a difference to JDRF for myself." Yeah. So that that was when I decided. And then about a month later, I joined the board myself. So that was. So that was the transition for me. It was the JDRF ride to cure diabetes. So that was a changing one. And I want, to, I want to just focus on what I would say the impact of 100 miles on someone with diabetes. Can you just give us, or maybe both of you, somehow give us a basic understanding of diabetes and then also the difference between, I'll say that in general, and what T1D is? When Lauren was first diagnosed... I had never heard of a three-year-old getting diabetes. I didn't really know what diabetes meant in the first place. And it was shocking to my husband and to me that a child, you know, would have this disease. And it was explained to us that um, her autoimmune system in fighting a virus, and she indeed had had uh, a little bit of a fever before her diagnosis, but her autoimmune disease did what it was supposed to do. It fought the little virus that she had, but it also attacked itself, it attacked the pancreas, and it killed the beta cells of her pancreas. And the beta cells are where the insulin is produced 
So without a production of insulin, you've got to replace it. Insulin unlocks the cells of the body to receive the glucose, the, the nourishing, uh, the nourishment that you get from eating foods. So you're, you're in big trouble if you don't have insulin. In order to replace it, there was no option, certainly in 1979, other than insulin injections. And so I had to learn how to give a three-year-old, first I did it on myself, um, a three-year-old, a uh, insulin injection every day. And the interesting fact at that, at that point, we were in a local hospital in Connecticut and they taught us what we needed to know. But shortly after we came home, we brought her home, we had the opportunity to go to Boston to the um, Joslin Diabetes Center, the world-renowned place for T1D. And immediately they told us everything that we were doing was wrong, was not, not up to date, not. And so they put her on two shots a day and then, and, and fixed the diet, which we weren't doing correctly. And also we didn't have blood testing. We only had urine testing and we were doing that wrong. So everything we have learned from the local hospital, insulin, it works like that. If you take insulin through a pump or a shot, it could take an hour for it to, to rec- for it to process. Well, one person could take an hour, one person could take 45 minutes, one person could take half an hour. Do that as a factor as well. So it's just, it's, yeah, so it's just it's challenging. That's incredible. That's a very, I feel like we've just given Diabetes 101. Yeah. All the way through like 501. So now, Lauren, if you can explain just, I'll say briefly about the impact that I'll say biking 100 miles can have on someone with diabetes. Yeah. So a couple of things to say. First of all, my mom touched briefly on just the technological advances we've seen over my lifetime. When I was first diagnosed, I had to pee on a stick. I now have um, a insulin pump. So this gives me my insulin and it shows me what my blood sugar is. It's called a continuous glucose monitor. So my continuous glucose monitor talks to my pump. There's an algorithm. So they talk to each other. It doesn't do everything, but it's actually making decisions on my behalf while I'm biking, which is pretty amazing. So that helps while I'm biking. And so, you know, definitely, you know, I can quickly peek at it while I'm biking. It certainly helps. Um, biking is different than, right? You put on your running shoes and you run out the door. Biking, as any cyclist will know, it's a production. You have to put, you have to, you know, grab your gear and you, you, you have to bring gels with you. you know, every half an hour, you have to, um, you know, just, you know, Put in sustenance. It's like twice as complicated if you have type one. You always have to bring things with you in case your blood sugar is low. And, you know, you're always making sure you let all of your um, backup um, insulin supplies in case your site gets too hot and comes out of your, um, out of your stomach. Uh, so you always have to make sure you're prepared. Um, but I will say at the JDRF Ride to Cure Diabetes, 
the day before the ride, they have a seminar called Managing Your Diabetes on the Ride. And we all get together and you have all the coaches and you have all the people during the ride and you have a whole discussion on tips and tricks and ways to manage your type one on the ride. And every, I never skip it. I go, this is my eighth ride this year. And every time I go, I learn something new on from the coaches and all the participants on how to, you know, what to do when you train, what to do on the actual ride itself. And there's just always different ways to back, back off your insulin, ways to manage your type one while you're training. And I mean, that's why you train. It's not only to build up your endurance, but it's ways to learn how to manage your type one as you're, as you're training and as you're biking. There's so many factors that go into managing type one diabetes. Exercise, food, number of carbs you eat, insulin, stress, hormones, mood, the amount of time you, you give between um, when you take your insulin, their insulin resistance. Um, yeah, and, the, and all of them uh, combined together, uh, you get an insulin uh, blood sugar level at the end. And the more your blood sugar level is under control, the easier it is for your body and your mind to function. And, and, that, and that also drives long-term complications. Absolutely. And of course, we don't want any long-term complications. We don't even want short-term complications. I mean, for me personally, it's not only given me these advances I've mentioned um, previously, but I, I always say JDRF is like a family. It's a family I've grown up with. I don't even know my life without JDRF. But it's, it's friends, it's camaraderie, it's community, it's family. But it's now my career. I've become a, a, a T1D life coach where I've always been fascinated with the impacts of type 1 on mental health. But I've now been able to take everything that I've been passionate about and give back to other people. Um, I, I had a life coach and it, you know, changing my mindset and realizing that type one doesn't have to be so hard. And I've now been able to turn it around and get back to other people. And so it's just, I feel like everything's come full circle and it's given me so much and now I can actually give back. And so it's just become everything to me. Right from the very beginning when I joined with two of my husband and I joined with two others and created something out of nothing and reached out to other families with children with, with T1D and created an event and brought together 300 people and raised, and we said, we can do this. This was just really, really spectacular. Um, and, uh, and, and then it just grew from our event grew and then we moved from Connecticut where we had started um, to the Washington, D.C. area and joined the local chapter here and watched it grow exponentially. It's just been amazing. And we've met people from all walks of life. We've met, um, you know, we've met parents of, of, of T1D and become good friends. We've watched some of them become government, uh, not employees, but government uh, politicians and governors and senators and secretaries of the Navy. And it's just been, uh, you know, an opportunity to meet so many interesting people. But it's given, uh, given me a chance to make really 
wonderful connections with people. I had, um, I had an assignment when I was volunteering at the office and that assignment was delivering a bag of hope to newly diagnosed families. Something I wish had happened to us, but it wasn't, didn't exist at the time. But, um, it's a bag of hope with inspirational and informational information, uh, booklets and pamphlets and things like that in an actual bag with a teddy bear wearing a JDRF walk t-shirt and a band-aid where he had his blood tests. It's really cute. And it, it was an opportunity for me to go meet new parents, sit down in their or living room and spend an hour or an hour and a half and get them off the ledge, so to speak. They were, you know, frantic and thinking, how are we going to do this? How, how is this going to become normal? How are we going to have, ha- ever have, you know, our family life back? And I sat and talked to them and answered their questions and made them. Then I've watched some of these bag of hope recipients become vital and, um, and, and, philanthropic ways and other ways of our chapter. And it's been extremely rewarding. I think what's interesting in volunteering is I am positive that you are doing that out of the goodness of your heart. And whether or not those families ended up volunteering for JDRF or maybe even for another organization of any kind, um, or never volunteer in their lives, you were just helping them at a moment when they needed help. And some sort of guidance. And that's where I think just volunteers make such a big difference for one another. And um, I appreciate your sharing that story. Lauren, do you have any sort of story that you could share with us about your volunteerism? Absolutely. I just have to add really quick. I cannot tell you how many times I'll be at an event where I remember Doug Lowenstein, who's on the International Board of Directors, he speaks at so many events and he was sent and he looked across the room at me and he said, Barbara Rappaport delivered my bag of hope <laughs> when my daughter, you know, we were just at our wits end. We didn't know what to do with ourselves. And she sat in our kitchen and just gave us, you know, I mean, he was like in tears. And I mean, that, that's just one of a thousand stories where people said, <laughs> Barbara Rappaport delivered our bag of hope. I mean, and Megan, you're so right. She just did it out of the kindness of her heart. But I mean, it's just, it's just gone so far. So anyway, um, so that's probably, that's one of my favorite stories, but I'd be remiss not to mention one of my most amazing JDRF moments was my mom and I chaired the um, Hope Gala, which is one of JDRF's signature events. We raised, I mean, the, the gala raised $2 million plus dollars, over $2 million dollars. And we chaired the gala together. We were the two chairs. It was one of the most amazing events. And I remember, I'll never forget when they came, they actually approached me first and said, do you want to chair the gala? And I said, I was intimidated. And I said, well, you know, my mom and I are not going to be the biggest fundraisers, right? We don't have a thousand connections. We're not going to be the biggest fundraisers. We're not CEOs of companies. We're, but, but we're doers. We are going to be the most roll up our sleeve people you have, you know? And they said, yeah, we know, we know you. That, that's what we want. 
Um, that, and that's exactly what we did. And we, we, I mean, I don't think I've ever worked so hard in my life, but it was so fun. And we put so, we put the Rappaport touch on the gala and we put little bio cards on every single table where each card featured a different person with type one diabetes. And we interviewed a different person and we had like a little card that um, had a face and a name and a little interview on every single chair. It was like 700 people at the gala. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we just poured our heart and soul into that gala and it was amazing. Do you have a, a story where the two of you volunteered together outside of the gala and what that experience was for yourself and possibly for the one you served? For many years, our chapter did a holiday gift wrap at the mall, at several malls, but at one very, very busy mall near us. We raised an incredible amount of money for a gift wrap, and we employed, and I say employed, we didn't pay anybody, but we <laughs> we used, oh, probably about seven or 800 volunteers over the course of five weeks. Because we were open every day of the week, mall hours. So it was a huge undertaking. And I started doing this when we first moved to Washington. So Lauren was only about 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And she would come, you know, my husband would come to the, my son came to the wrap. Everybody came to the wrap. But I remember Lauren would be at the wrap. And she was a good rapper, but she was afraid to talk to the customer. So I would walk over to the customer with her and say, welcome to the, to the gift wrap. Would you like to have anything wrapped? Please to let us know what you'd like. And please pick out your paper, pick out the color of your bow. And then I'd give the package to Lauren and she would do it just a totally fine job, but she was just afraid to talk to the customer. Well, fast forward five or six years, because we did this for years, years, for some reason or another. Maybe with Mike Clark, just because he had a skill that he could provide an event full of people that day. Maybe that's how he was attracted to it. But I am positive what kept him there were the people. I think people just need to be reminded that there are these opportunities everywhere. I have no doubt that your ride for the cure in Washington, D.C. is just the best. So as we're starting to wrap up our episode today, are there any final stories you would like to share with us? For some shameless bragging about my mom, (laughs) she's just not an ordinary volunteer. She won the International Volunteer of the Year Award. I mean, she's just, she's so modest. That's why there's no way she would ever say this for herself. She's just really and truly not just dedicated her life to volunteering. I mean, she went to the office four times a week for her whole life. I mean, she's just amazing. So she won the volunteer, the International Volunteer of the Year Award from JDRF. She carried the Olympic torch for the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. The theme of the Olympics was uh, local heroes. So she carried the torch. Literally a legend at JDRF. You could go to headquarters and say Barbara Rappaport. Barbara, I love Barbara. <laughs> Everybody knows Barbara Rappaport. She's just, she's just amazing. I so, say, yeah, anyway. Yeah. And given, I'll say, her extraordinary um, 
reputation as a volunteer. What has that meant to you, Lauren, as her daughter in the what you have experienced and how it's impacted how her volunteerism and your volunteering together has impacted you? It's just been an inspiration for me. And I think it's funny with some of the questions in prep for this podcast, I looked at it through a different lens as a life coach. And I think it took me so long to volunteer myself, not because I didn't want to, but because I didn't have the self-belief. I think it took me a while to think, I can do this. I can actually do this. And it's because I think my mom is such a legend. And it took me a little while to realize that I can do this too. I may never be a Barbara Rappaport, but I can contribute too. She's just been such an inspiration and I am honored to fall. Such an honor and a joy to do things together. Thank you, Mom. Well, I can't imagine ending on a better note than that. I, I thank you both so very much for sharing your passion, your commitment, and um, just yourselves, your hearts with us today. Thank you so much. And, um, and of course, if anybody's visiting Washington, D.C., it sounds like they can reach out to you <laughs> or find you at the hawk. If anyone, anyone's newly diagnosed, has any questions about type one, we're always open to talk to anyone. Thank you so much. And thank you, Barbara. Thank you for your time today. It's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doing Good Podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation today, we invite you to subscribe or rate us on your favorite podcast player. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Doing Good TV. Doing Good is a 501c3 nonprofit. Please donate to support this podcast and more via the donate button on our website, doinggood.tv. Together, let's celebrate those who are doing good. <laughs>